Hey listeners, we are Frontline Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. You are about to listen to a sermon from a Sunday gathering at our downtown OKC location. We pray that it moves you towards the power and presence of Christ and calls you to love God, love people, and push back darkness. Please visit FrontlineChurch.com for more information. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 3, 1 through 6. The word of God speaks to us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is God's word to us. Good morning, church. We're doing okay? It's good to be with you guys today. Um, man, it's so fun to have all these babies and families. We had uh, um, like five or six in the first service. And so just to see the life that God's bringing to our church is a ton of fun. So if you are, as Corey mentioned, a guest of one of these families, we're really glad that you're here today. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as one of our pastors, pastor of teaching here downtown. And um, so if you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 3, the passage that you just read. Uh, that was just read for us. We're going to be here today, and this is a, a part of a study we're doing in the book of Genesis. So this is a week five or six of the study. And um, the passage in front of us today, I'll uh, get, get right to it, but it's, it's as high as it is deep. This is a mountaintop passage in Scripture um, because of its sort of centrality of importance in the biblical message, but it's also deep um, because it's one of the saddest passages in all of the Bible. So there's a, there's a minor key to the work that we're going to be doing today. So if you please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and uh, we'll see how God would shape us. Our God, we come to you today in the mercy of your son, Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Maybe just take a second there privately and just thank Jesus for his mercy. God, we ask you today that by the ministry of Jesus, Jesus, you poured out the Holy Spirit saying that you would guide us, you would take us by the hand, and you would show us everything that's true. So I pray that you would do that in these next 30 minutes together. Would you take us by the hand and would you show us what's true? We also want to confess with the songs we've been singing, the gift of life and children, but also your word that tells us that you are good, God. And everything that you do is good. And so would you help us to believe your goodness today? However we're coming in the room, would you do ministry today of opening our eyes to see that you are present and you are good? Hold our attention today, God, we pray. Holy Spirit, lead us we offer this prayer in Jesus' strong name, and the church said, Amen. Amen. 
Well, the Lord God called, and he said, where are you? I want you to feel that question today. The Lord God called, Scripture says, and he says, where are you? The question that God asks in this passage is as living and as active and as moving, and it's the present question God's asking to you today as much as it was at the moment of crisis in Genesis chapter 3. Where are you? God's not asking a question about location. He's asking a question of the soul. He's asking a question about relationship. Where are you? God's not asking the question today because he doesn't know the answer. He's not asking the question as though he's like hard up for information. God knows. He's asking the question because he intends to draw you out. It's a a fascinating question because there's not a yes or no question. You can't just sort of cut God off with a short answer. It's a question that's going to require you some thought and to speak for yourself. Where are you? It's a question that maybe there's not a question like it in all of Scripture, like not another statement like this. It's like it's a question so full of love. It's a loving question. It's a question so full of sadness. And it's a question so full of judgment. All of those things happening at one time, not more one than the others, like all of them to the fullness of love, sadness, and judgment. It's a question of loving pursuit. Where are you? It's a question of sadness over the fracture of relationship. It's a question of judgment because the judge knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what we've done, and he knows exactly why we're there. In its context, this is a question that assumes wherever you are, me too, however you answer the question, wherever you are, it's a question that assumes that you're not here with me and I'm not there with you. And I want you to make no mistake today from jump, like God is the first person who asks this question. This question comes very first from God himself, and yet this is the same question that now reveals the essence of sin. This question reveals it. Like, this question exposes what's totally messed up with me and what's totally messed up with you and the rest of humanity in our fallen condition. Because since Genesis chapter 3... All of humanity has taken this question that was first asked of God, and we've now flipped it on him as though he's the one on trial. We've done this. We've taken God's question and flipped it on him, and that has now become the most asked question of God throughout human history, east of Eden, as though the problem of showing up is God's problem. Our now question back to God is, God, where are you, isn't it? And we ask this question of God as though we're the judge. We ask this question of God as though we're the most offended party. We ask this question of God as though he's indebted to us and we're entitled to his presence. So God, where are you? 
And I'm not saying, guys, that this is an altogether wrong question to ask. The Bible is littered with examples. There's a faith-filled way that we can and we ought to ask this question. But isn't it true this question is most asked of God as though we know best where he ought to be and we know best what he ought to be up to. And so we ask it as though we're holding him accountable for not being on the job. God, where are you? The passage before us today, I start this way because the passage before us today, as much as we want to understand it by the time we're sent, I need us to feel this passage. I need us to feel this passage. The topic is what theologians have called the fall of man. What we're talking about today is the moment that the world broke. The moment that we broke. We're talking about when sin entered into the world, the first bad day that led to every other bad day since then. The writer of this passage has this burden to help his original readers understand, but also us, why is the world the way that it is? We're watching the news and asking this question. Post-Exodus, Israel is looking back on 400 years of slavery, asking this question, why is the world the way that it is? And I realize by saying all that, we're in a present moment where not everyone defines sin in the same way that we might have used to. We're not even in a moment where everyone believes that sin is a thing anymore. Like we're in a moment where some would say that sin is just a moral religious construct that doesn't have any real consequences. And so it's not a real thing that we should even consider or be worried about. Isn't it true that we're all pretty well left to ourselves to decide what's right and from wrong? And so we don't need like a religious scare tactic or something called sin to keep us from being bad people or to like warn us or something like that into being good people. But if that's your definition of sin, as though it's not a thing at all, then what do you call school shootings? What do you call geopolitical wars that are the result of scores of innocent deaths? What do you call things like rape and domestic violence and racism and terrorism and human trafficking? And I could keep rolling a list out. Maybe you would just say, well, those things are just evil. They're just, they're just wicked things. I would totally agree with you. But I would say, where did that come from? Like, what's, what's, down, what's down there that drove those things out? What is that thing called? And the biblical answer for that is sin. That thing is called sin. And the problem isn't primarily, like, I'm not just talking about something that's happening outside of these walls. The problem is primarily something that's happening in, in here. The seedbed of all the worst stuff in the world lives in your heart as much as it does mine. If any one of us had our thoughts or our desires or our impulses displayed in a, for a live stream for everyone around us to see for just a single day, every one of us in this room would be outed. It's not true to say that you and me are just generally good people who occasionally do bad things. That's not true. You and I do bad things because rebellion against God has affected us to the very core. What's true about you and what's true about the one preaching this sermon is that we've rejected God, we've resisted God, 
We've suppressed the truth of God. We've put ourselves in the place of God in our lives. It's true to say that we are selfish, we're prideful, we're unloving, we're full of envy, we're unwilling to forgive those who harm us, we're vengeful, we desire the very things that God said would destroy us and destroy other people, we're sexually immoral, we take the good gifts that God has given to us and we worship them instead as gods, as though they are what satisfy. And yet we're the ones who have the audacity to take God's question and flip it back on him and to ask him, where are you? As though he's the one who moved. And so I realized, right, like, that's an interesting way to start a sermon. I just dropped a, I just dropped a heavy weight into the middle of the room. A really unpopular weight. But we need to feel, we need to like not just sort of read Genesis 3 like news. We need to feel this. We need to gasp. We need to feel the breaking of this text as much as we understand it. Because until the bad news is bad, until the bad news is bad, the good news will not be good. And the good news is truly good because it's against the backdrop of what's truly bad. An old English preacher once said it this way, until sin becomes bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin becomes bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so as we move through our passage today, we'll go around four terms, four turns. The dialogue, the decision, the dread, and the sword. Dialogue, decision, dread, and sword. So what's happening through the first two chapters is the writer has been doing this work of stockpiling. He's been doing the work of hoarding and like revealing to us the evidence that God is absolutely good. He's created everything. He's benevolent. Chapter two ends with man and woman together. It says they're naked and they're unashamed. The pinnacle of innocence and freedom. They're in a garden that's very name means delight and luxury. God is enjoying his creation. His creation is enjoying him. He says to Adam and Eve, everything, everything that I have is yours, except one tree. Everything, except one. In chapter three, what's happening then is we turn the page to chapter three and everything now narrows in on what's happening with that tree, the tree. Pick up with me in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? As we jump in today, I want to just sort of say this. Please don't let, if you have sort of familiarity, if you've read this passage in your background, don't let familiarity rob engagement from you today. Because what we're reading is, is an account of not just an ancient story, but this story will help you and me actually interpret your story. This is a story that actually interprets ours. What happens with Adam, what happens with Eve, and what happens with the serpent happens to you and to me all the time. It happened yesterday. Maybe it's even happened this morning. 
And so we don't know initially by the passage, but the rest of the Bible makes clear that Satan is speaking through the serpent. And the first thing we learn about the serpent is of his craftiness. Now, craftiness isn't altogether a problem, but we're told something about the serpent in his craftiness that we shouldn't just, that word is there to let us know. It's not just so much to listen to what he says, but to be on guard against his intentions. What's happening behind what he's saying? And so notice the first thing the serpent says is, did God actually say? He mocks God's word. He mocks it. Are you serious? Did God actually say that to you? What kind of egocentric, selfish person would keep something like that from you? Did God actually say? And notice how he finishes his thought. He says, did God actually say you shouldn't eat of any tree? Like no tree in the garden. He mocks God's word and then he twists God's word. God didn't say they couldn't eat of any tree in the garden. Chapter 2, verse 16 says they could eat of every tree. Every tree except one. And so what Satan is doing is he's drawing them into a web of doubt as if to say, if God would withhold anything from you, isn't that the same thing as him withholding everything from you? He's drawing them into this web. And isn't that sometimes how you and I feel about God? The one thing you really want from him, the thing you've been asking for, the thing you've sort of been building your life around and asking God to bless, and he withholds it from you. It leads you to think, not of all the things that he has given to you, it leads you to think, if he would withhold this one thing, surely then he'll withhold everything. We do bad math. We do bad math. Satan is trying to get Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God and the one thing that he's keeping from him. Listen, this is what's ironic about this passage. The very goodness that's been carried in spades through two chapters, that's been displayed and colored everything, is now the very goodness that's in question. And this is deconstruction 101. The thing that's become so popular in these moments, deconstructing from your faith. This is, the, this, is, this is the original, this is OG deconstruction. And so, so I just throw this out here to say, hey, let's not be dumb. Let's not be dumb to satanic tactics. This has been happening since the beginning. If I can get you to doubt or to eject on the goodness of God, then I can get you to do anything. If God isn't good, and there's no telling where this goes. And so look at Eve, how she responds. And so the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat of the trees of the, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. And she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So Satan twists God's word. But notice Eve proves that she doesn't really even know God's word. Because God didn't say anything about touching the tree. He spoke only about eating from the tree. So what Eve does is she now highlights what she imagines to be the strictness of God abstracted from the goodness of God. She's now thinking only of what God says no to and no regard for God's intentions. And how many times is that true for us? We start to have doubt and we start to drift because of we, how we imagine God to be or how we feel God to be, despite the fact that we don't even know what the Bible says. So many of our like 
preconceived ideas and preconceived hesitations about God have more to do with our imaginations and more to do with our feelings and not anything to do with what's clearly revealed about him. We rip out of the Bible from context things that he says and we neglect his intentions, the heart of his goodness and what he's saying and why he's saying it. And what we do is we end up putting God on trial and this is really popular in our moment, especially when we cherry pick things from scripture to have an attack on God in regards to sex and gender. The serpent responds in verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you're not surely gonna die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So now Eve, what's happening here is in the dialogue is Eve is squarely in the web. And she's in the web, here's why, because she's trying to reason with crazy. What we should have in our minds in the story is that she was given dominion. Adam and Eve were given dominion over every creature in God's creation. So when this serpent comes to her and is talking, that should be red flag number one. Talking to her, mocking God and twisting God's word, red flag number two. And then rejecting God's judgment, red flag number three, what we should read is, serpent, shut up. I have dominion over you. Do your job. But instead, she's trying to reason with crazy. He mocks God's word, twists it, and rejects it. You will not surely die. The first doctrine in Scripture that is rejected is God's right to judge. The serpent's appeal is this. God's judgments can't be trusted because he's not good. And he's not good because look at what he's holding out on you. Look at what he's holding out on you. Listen, you barely, you, you merely bear the image of God. But this tree could make you equal to God. You could be able to decide for, for yourself what's right from wrong. You should be able to decide that for yourself, this intoxicating lie of autonomy. I should be able to make my own rules and call my own strikes, determined for myself. It's a lie that we still love to believe to this day. And so here's what's happening in this whole dialogue. Satan is making an all-out assault on the goodness of God. He's attacking it head on. And isn't that the question of the world today? If God is really good, as you say, Christian, then why doesn't he stop fill in the blank? If God is really good, then why would he allow? And so at the core of everything that's tempting to you, at the core of everything that's tempting to me, is this, is this seed of doubt in our hearts. Can God really be trusted? Is God really good? Will God really provide is he somehow holding out on me? If I obey God, will I be missing out? That's the lie. That's the lie that first went into the heart of Eve. It then went into the heart of Adam. And it's the lie that's gone into your heart and mine. If you obey, then you won't be happy. How could God, if he's so good, withhold from you? If he withholds anything from you, isn't that the same as him withholding everything from you? You see, at the core, at the core of everything that's wrong in the world, and yes, I'm willing to make that statement, at the core of everything that's wrong in the world is an attack on the goodness of God. Adam and Eve believed it, and so have we. And so we'll move to verse 6, dialogue to decision. 
Read this carefully with me. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And it says, and he ate. Hey, this might be the saddest verse in all of the Bible. The goodness of God is on the table. I don't want it. I'll take my own option. And the observer with her says, me too. Verse 6 is telling of Adam and Eve, but you, this is a mirror to you and me. If you don't see yourself in verse 6, then you're missing it. This is exactly what we do. This is exactly how it goes down for us. You're thinking, well, the tree is not a temptation for me. Fine, what is? Replace the tree with what's tempting for you. The goodness of God is on the table, and consistently we make the same decision. I'll take my option. The tree seemed to be able to offer something good that God couldn't. Isn't that how sin's always presented to us? It never presents itself for the thing that it truly is. Sin never tells you about its consequences on the back end. Sin only tells you about right now pleasure that you can have ready made and ordered for you. It doesn't tell you about back end shame. Why would it? Sin always overpromises, but it cannot deliver. Paul Tripp has this great quote about sin as a masquerade party. It says, sin lives in a costume. And that's why it's so hard to recognize. The fact that sin looks so good is one of the things that makes it so bad. In order for it to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. And so he says, life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. We're impatient yelling, where's the costume of someone who's just zealous for truth? Lust masquerades as just a love for beauty. Gossip does its evil work by living in a costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up as a, as a servant heart. Pride, the pride of always being right, masquerades as a love for biblical wisdom. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is part of its draw. You never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that the DNA of sin is deception. Now, what this means personally is that as sinners, we are all very committed and gifted self-swindlers. We're all too skilled at looking at our own wrong and seeing good. And so Eve took of the fruit and she ate. And where was Adam? The text is really specific. He was with her. He was with her. He was standing right there. The serpent was, the serpent was questioning the goodness of his creator who put him in the garden of luxury. He was spitting lies into the heart of his bride, and he stood there while it all happened, doing nothing. And when Eve took, he said, me too. And he ate. One scholar puts this text so well. He says, Eve listened to the serpent. Adam listened to Eve. 
and no one listened to God. They took and they ate. And here's what's ironic about this. Sometimes you look at this and you go, what's, what's the problem? Like, it's just like eating. Like, I could maybe understand if, like, Adam and Eve all of a sudden went on, like, a killing rampage and started murdering all the animals in the garden or something, especially the cats. Then we go, well, now there's a problem. These people are killing animals. What's the big deal with just eating? What's the big deal? An old prayer says it this way. The heinousness of sin. The thing that makes sin so heinous is not so much the act itself. It's not so much the thing being done, but it's the greatness of the person that's being sinned against. We've punched the lion in the face. The dialogue, the decision, the dread. Keep reading with me in verse 7, the fallout. It says, the eyes of both were opened. We might ask the question, hey, what's the big deal? Adam and Eve weren't confused. They knew. They knew who they betrayed. It says, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve knew that they had removed themselves from their covering. To this point, they had been naked and unashamed. But listen, it's not as though they were entirely naked. They had been clothed by the presence of God. They had been clothed with the very glory of God. He was their covering, and they knowingly, willingly, consciously removed themselves from his covering. And in the most lame act of the human history, they sewed fig leaves together. What do you use to cover yourself? Hey, what's the thing? Because we all have a thing. Hey, like, what's the thing that you use to tell yourself and to tell other people about you that you're okay when deep down you know you're exposed and you're scared? What do you use? Do you cover yourself with money? Do you cover yourself with success and busyness? If I can just turn up the noise. Do you cover yourself with your appearance? Do you cover yourself with alcohol or prescription drugs? What do you use to cover yourself? Let's keep reading in verse 8. It says they, sound, they heard the sound of the Lord God. Like this is the, this is the epic moment of like the kid doing something wrong in the house and he hears the car pull up. The garage door is lifting. It was just the sound of God. Like God's coming. It says the man and wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That is a crazy sentence, isn't it? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God as though that's able to be accomplished. The word presence there actually translates face. They hid themselves from the face of God. I, I can't look him in the face. I can't look him in the eye. And verse nine is the question, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? You've always been that way. Clothed in my presence, 
clothed in my glory. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman you gave to be with me, well, she gave me the fruit and then I, I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I just want you to see the fruit of sin before we take our final turn. The serpent promised freedom and autonomy. He also promised they wouldn't really die. And here's what's so crazy about this passage. They got what they wanted. And even though they didn't die that day, they died. And we died with them. Their constant communion with God died. They would eventually go to their own graves, but before they would die, they would witness one of their sons killing another of their sons because of jealousy. And they'd have to bury one of their sons because the lie that they believed about the goodness of God also went into the hearts of their children as into ours. Their innocence died. Guilt and fear gripped their hearts. They denied. They blamed. They were introduced to shame. Guys, for all intent and purposes, they died. It's crazy because what I just read down was a description of what every day feels like for us east of the garden. And they passed it down to us. And this is why, this is why the modern therapeutic movement is a sham. Because the modern therapeutic movement wants to say that shame isn't real. And so we'll create sort of jujitsu tactics to help you with your self-esteem. Shame isn't real. And that sin isn't real. And then they'll tell us that, hey, you're enough. The problem with all of that is everything inside of us knows that's not true. We feel our unworthiness. We know what we've done. We know what we've been up to. We know that we can't look in God's eye. And all of the things we're using to cover over ourselves all the time to convince ourselves and other people that we're okay, prove it. The dialogue, the decision, the dread, the final move today, the sword. Fast forward in Genesis chapter 3 to the end. We're going to deal with all the rest of the middle next week. But in 23 it says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. 24, And he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed there a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. In this final move, taste with me the sweetness of Jesus. The greatest loss on that day was the presence of God. <laughs> that was the most terrifying. It wasn't just that he was walking the sound of him. It was that his presence was lost. And a sword there is guarding the way back in, a sign of judgment. And at the very least, it's trying to tell us if you and I are ever going to go back, then it's not going to be by anything of our own doing. If we're ever getting back into the presence of God, it's nothing of our own doing. We're not enough. The only way back is for someone to go through the sword. And so the question from the beginning has been about the goodness of God. 
And the question is answered in the sending of God's own son. At the cross, Jesus took the sword, the sword of judgment for sin fell on him and he undid everything that went wrong in Genesis 3. He answered the question that Satan put into our hearts, is God good? Can he be trusted? Does he mean good for us? He answered that question with nails in his hands, a spear in his side. He became sin for us in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Is he good? Yes, he's good. More good than we could have ever dreamed, he offered his son. At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. In a beautiful garden, God told Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live, but he disobeyed. In a dark garden called Gethsemane, God told Jesus, obey me about the tree, obey me about the cross and you will be crushed. And yet Jesus said, your will be done. At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. Sin had banished us from the presence of God. And on the cross, the sword fell on Jesus in this mysterious way without severing the unity of the Trinity. And Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the veil of the temple was torn so that now he is the way back into the presence of God. He was banished by the Father so that we would be reunited. At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. He has dealt with the lie. He has dealt with the tree. He has dealt with the sword. He has dealt with our banishment. And now he becomes our covering. When sin is as it is bitter, Christ is as he is. Oh, so sweet. Three questions in a prayer. Where in your life do you tend to doubt the goodness of God? Where in your life do you tend to doubt that he really does mean good for you? Where in your life, second, where in your life are you stuck in hiding and afraid? Hey, is there any place in your life where you're terrified for someone to find out? Wherever that place is, the appeal today is to look to Jesus. And I don't say that in a trite way, but he invites you out not to shame you, but to save you. He only means good for you. Look at his son. And here's the final question. Can you hear God's question today? On the other side of Jesus, can you hear God's question today and how would you answer? Where are you? Where are you? Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask you in the beginning, and I trust you're doing your work, would you please take us by the hand and show us what's true?
God, thank you for all the love in your heart. Thank you for all the mercy in your son. And thank you for the gift of your truth that would come and find us. God, I pray in this room today, Holy Spirit, would you please make sin be bitter and show us Jesus to be sweet. Jesus, thank you that you took the sword. Thank you that you said your will be done. And that's our prayer today too. Your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.